Onasu. So this afternoon we return for the final time in this cycle to the practice of mindfulness of breathing. And I'd like to actually start with a question, which um, then segues into the little bit that I'd like to share about the practice before we go to the next session. My question here is, when I practice mindfulness of breathing, I often feel strong tension or vibrations in my forehead. What is the best way to release this? Uh, it's a very good question, and I'm glad you asked it early on, because once that type of tension becomes habitual, if you kind of say, well, um, I can bear it, I can bear it, then it can really set in and become a habit, and it can be quite difficult to eradicate. So it's very good to pick it up quickly and then address the issue, and, I'll, and I shall address it right now. Um, change your technique. That's what I would say, change your technique. For, uh, it's probably coming, that is, when you're focusing on the sensations at the nostrils, which is a, a classic practice. It's a perfectly good practice. But for some people, when they're focusing a lot of attention, they're just, even if they're doing their very best, and they know the instructions, don't clamp down, don't tense the eyes, and all of that, and they're doing everything right, sometimes it just happens anyway, that by bringing that much attention here to the nostrils, um, that tension does start to build up in the forehead. And I understand, in principle, why, and that is this, uh, this theme that I've mentioned, I think, earlier. That is, wherever you direct your attention, especially with a good deal of concentration within the body, wherever you direct your attention, there, prana does converge. Okay? And so this point right there at the, at the apogee of the nostrils is pretty darn close to the forehead, and it can easily give rise to pressure building up in the head, and you'd really like to avoid that. So, what to do? Uh, well, this segues into uh, an altern alternate mode of practicing mindfulness of breathing that has all of the, the noble heritage, the lineage, the experience, the authenticity uh, of the method of Buddha Gosa. And, it's, and it goes back at least about the same time. That is, Buddha Gosa, we know, I'm going to summarize this a little bit. The classic practice here is focusing on the sensations of the nostrils. And this, the sensations themselves are called the preliminary signs. So I'm going to give this a very, very concise uh, account right now. You can find a more elaborate uh, discussion of this in the Attention Revolution. Then you can go to the source in Buddha Gosa's The Path of Purification, which actually you can download the whole book uh, for free online. I have it now, a digital version, which I really like because it's a lot lighter uh, than having the big fat book itself. So, but the very brief explanation here is that when the sensations of the breath themselves, at the apertures of the nostrils, that's called the preliminary signs, right? And then as you go deeper, deeper into the practice, eventually in that target area that is right there in front of your face, around the, maybe right in front of the nose, a mental image will arise called an acquired sign. When that becomes stable, when it arises, especially when you're very mellow, very focused, very stable, and it comes repeatedly, repeatedly, and in pretty much the same form, then you switch, you shift your attention from the tactile sensations to that purely mental image. That becomes your stage two of practice. You focus on that until the counterpart sign arises, which is a hundred, nay, a thousand times more subtle than the acquired sign. It's emerging from the form realm. It's very, very subtle. And when that arises, you've achieved shamatha. So that's the really short version. And that's classic. And I have really, frankly, no doubt that this does take place. Uh, even some of my own students have experienced the acquired sign. It's not that uncommon. Uh, so there's one classic approach. 
Uh, and, but you'll recall that when the Buddha says in that phase three of his four aphorisms regarding mindfulness of breathing, attend to the whole body of the breath, I breathe in, attending to the whole body of the breath, I breathe out. Remember that? And the Theravada interpretation is, oh, he said the whole body. I'm sorry. The Buddha says, attending to the whole body, I breathe in, attending to the whole body, I breathe out. The Theravada interpretation of that is, I'm attending to the whole body of the breath, which means the entire course of the inhalation, exhalation. One can ask, is that the only authentic interpretation of the statement by the Buddha? And the answer is no. It's a very good interpretation. It's proven itself to be very effective for many, many hundreds of years. Uh, but there's another track here, whereas this is the, the track from the Pali Canon and the Theravada interpretation. There's another track going back to the Sanskrit uh, accounts or, how do you say, records of the Buddhist teachings, uh, including his teachings on the mindfulness of breathing. And really one of the greatest of all the commentators from classical India on the Buddhist teachings in the Mahayana tradition is Asanga, who was either contemporary with Buddhaghosa or was almost contemporary fourth or fifth century. Uh, one of his classic texts is called the Shravagabhumi. Um, so I'll just say that, that's a Sanskrit title. And in it, he gives quite an elaborate explanation of mindfulness of breathing, which I have translated. And we used that during the la last fall's retreat right here in Phuket. Um, but I'm not going to give a big intellectual or academic explanation of that right now. I'm just going to say this, that a Sangha, who together with Nagarjuna is really one of the two of the greatest contemplative scholars, adepts, mahasiddhas of all of Indian Buddhism. So he speaks with enormous authority. And he's cited in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism with equal reverence. Uh, when he comes to this line, attending the whole body I breathe in, attending to the whole body I breathe out, it's the same. Uh, he interprets that just literally. In other words, he doesn't interpret it, he just reads it literally. And so his interpretation of this is that you're actually attending to the sensations of the breath throughout the entire body. Right? That's a very literal interpretation. It is an interpretation, but it's a literal one. Uh, but now for the Buddhist scholars here, at least Andrea, and there may be others as well, one might very well wonder, well, when you actually achieve shamatha, this is a little bit of technical, but it won't take long. It's quite interesting. Though. And that is when you achieve shamatha, threshold, threshold to the first jhana, okay? when you achieve that, your mind or your awareness shifts from our familiar dimension of reality called the kamadatu or desire realm, desire dimension, and shifts into a much more subtle dimension of reality. Uh, while your substrate consciousness is individual, you have your own and it's unique, the form realm or rupadatu is collective. You don't have your own individual one. And so it's another entirely different order of magnitude, another dimension of reality out of which this phenomenal world, the universe as we know it, the universe that cosmologists, astrophysicists, quantum physicists, that world, the world out of which this phenomenal world, which Buddhists call the desire realm, out of which it emerges in terms of the cosmogony, the emergence of the cosmos, is the form realm. The form realm. It's more fundamental. It's more basic. And so your mind is actually shifting into another whole dimension of reality when you achieve shamatha. That's exactly the threshold. You've crossed from the desire realm to the form realm exactly in that moment when you achieve shamatha. Which means you're no longer, when you achieve shamatha, you're no longer attending to any phenomenon that is within the desire realm. Because you've shifted over to the form realm, right? So that counterpart sign that comes in Buddha Gosa's account, that belongs to the form realm. So 
for a very critically astute scholar of Buddhism, one might wonder then, as I did, uh, how is it that a Sangha makes no reference to this threefold preliminary sign, which is in the desire realm, the acquired sign, which is still in the desire realm, but it's purely mental and not sensory, and then the counterpart sign, which is of the form realm. Uh, he makes no reference to that. But then neither does the, neither does the Buddha. There's no reference to these three signs in the Buddha's own teachings in the Pali Canon. So that, once again, is an interpretation. But I'm absolutely certain that it's not an interpretation by some philosopher that just kind of got speculating and saying, oh, gee, maybe this is true. This is an account of people's actual experience, again, replicated over many, many centuries. But a Sangha makes no reference to that, to these threefold, none at all, nor to attending to the sensations at the, at the nostrils. He just says, Attend to the sensations of the breath within the, full, the whole body, and then you'll achieve the threshold of the first jhana, and then on you go. So how could you be attending to sensations in the body, which are completely located in the desire realm, and while attending to them, your mind shift over to the form realm and achieve shamatha? Why wouldn't that be like an anchor? Uh, that, an anchor that just basically, how do you say, fastens your mind to the desire realm, because it's anchored in sensory, uh, tactile sensations, which are enti entirely within the desire realm, right? And so the answer to that is, he doesn't say. He doesn't say. Which means, but at the same time, he is a, an incredibly accomplished yogi. If you, if you wonder, oh, did he achieve shamatha or not? Well, this is like asking whether Albert Einstein was good at algebra. You know, like, okay, you really shouldn't have to ask that question. So he didn't say. So then we're in a mode of interpretation. So this is my best shot. I may be wrong, but this is my best shot. And that is, there you are. I'm giving, again, a kind of a front-loading the next session. There you are tending to these subtle sensations related to the breathing. That is, you're not just focusing on the sensations of air, as you are the air touching the skin, as you are the apertures of the nostrils, but sensations throughout the body that are correlated with the flow of prana which is correlated with the in and out breath. You're really attending to the, the movements of prana within the body. As you do so, again, as I mentioned here at the apogees of the nostrils, I, I gave the analogy of this background radiation, which is just to say you have an ongoing flow of sensation there, which is there with or without the, the added on sensations of the flow of the breath. It's there, and if you attend closely enough, you'll see it. Well, similarly, as you're letting your awareness illuminate the whole space of your body, well, of course, you've got a lot of background radiation there, that it, a lot of background. You have a lot of tactile sensations that are just there, and they're there whether or not you have any additional sensations correlated with the in and out breath. I mean, just the earth element, your body in contact with the, the cushion, and so forth. The sensation of, of the fire element, the whole gradient up from cold to hot, that's there not related to the breathing. And then you have movements uh, that, you know, you have other, other movements throughout the body as well that are not necessarily related to the breath. But if you consider that your baseline, that's your baseline, just like your baseline there at the apertures of the nostrils is a flow of sensation that's always there. Then in addition to that, get that just kind of that field of kind of the, the background energy, the background radiation or tactile sensations throughout the field, you'll notice within that field, the fluctuations of sensations throughout the body that are directly related to in-breath and out-breath. 
whether it's short, long, and so forth. As the whole system calms down, long breath, short breath, attending to the whole body, and then the fourth aphorism, calming the composite of the body and mind, I breathe in, calming the composite of the body, I breathe out. Well, whether or not you're focusing on the sensations at the, at the apertures of the nostrils or on the sensations correlated with the respiration throughout the entire body, either way, those sensations are, gonna get, are going to get subtler and subtler and subtler, right? The breath is going to become vanishingly subtle, which means the sensations that are directly correlated to the in and out flow of the breath will also get increasingly subtle. So my interpretation, for what it's worth, is that if you're following a Sangha's method and with this kind of sheet lightning approach that is just illuminating the whole space, but specifically focusing on not just the sensations of earth, earth, water, fire, and air, but on those sensations that are directly related to the in and out breath or correlated to it. As you're focusing on that, it will just take you subtler and subtler and subtler and subtler. until it takes you right there up to the ninth stage of shamatha. Extremely subtle, kind of mild, mild reverberation, kind of a, almost, like, almost like a murmur of sensation of the breath. You get all the way to the ninth stage, and then you release it. Then you release it. And in that release, you go directly into the formula, and you achieve shamatha. That's my interpretation. That's my hypothesis. Now you can put it to the test. Might take a year or two in a very conducive environment, etc., etc. But I, I don't see any other way to get to it. I have no doubt that Asanga's teachings are authentic. He is truly brilliant and tremendously deep experience. Uh, but there it is. And so now, in response to this question, I would suggest that at least for the time being, don't focus on the apertures of the nostrils at all. If you're starting to get tension building up in the forehead, back off. You can come down to the abdomen. That's kind of nice. You can go to the full body awareness, that's safe. But you'll see that if we're following the Asanga's method, and that's what I suggest we do momentarily when we go to our next session, that although on the surface of it, it looks like phase one. Okay, really mellow out, release, 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 increase relaxation without losing the clarity with which you began. Okay, cool. But no, now we're way up there at stage three or stage four, and that is the object of mindfulness is still the same. And that is, we're attending to the sensations of the breath throughout the entire body. But we're, we're attending to them as they get subtler and subtler and subtler, which means even while we're attending to that whole field and the sensations arising within it, uh, the sensations will get subtler, which means that will challenge you to increase your vividness. And so the same synergy will occur. Increasing vividness gives rise to greater stability, gives rise, rise to greater relaxation, Greater relaxation gives rise to greater stability, greater vividness. The same synergistic wheel among those three qualities can occur. But this is the full body approach. So um, that would be the interpretation. And I would suggest that these are, both of these are utterly authentic. Among students of mine who have been in retreat, full-time retreat for some months or years, a number of them have experimented with the Sangha's method. And really, pretty much, they all loved it. They really, really liked it. And it does take you subtler and subtler. It doesn't kind of just leave you at some coarse level. Otherwise, Asanga would have figured that out himself. You know, he wouldn't have taught it, kept us in kindergarten forever. So that's just a brief, a brief overview then of these two tracks, each of which is completely authentic. 
each of which is complete in and of itself. But one entails these multiple signs where you're going up to the mind and then into the counterpart sign. And the other one is just taking this track, subtler and subtler and subtler sensations. And I'll just give a close with an analogy. Some of you have background in Vajrayana practice where you'll have a disillusion, a dissolution, where you will, for example, if you have visualized, let's say yourself, as a yidam, within, I'll be very, very short here, it's just, it's just an analogy, so no big deal. But if you visualized yourself as some yidam, or meditation deity, in the context of your Vajrayana practice, and you're coming to the conclusion, then you, you have this whole process of, in this virtual reality that you created with the power of your imagination, you imagine your entire environment dissolving into your body. And then your body dissolving into a seed syllable at your heart. So this would be a Sanskrit or a Tibetan syllable at your heart. And then the seed syllable, it classically occurs in many, many sadhanas. I can't, couldn't even count the number in which this is true. The seed syllable then gradually dissolves from bottom up. And often at the, at the top, there's kind of like a crescent, like a crescent, so that the, the, the letter below that dissolves into the crescent, and then the crescent goes into the, into the little bindu, the little sphere, that dissolves into that. And above the sphere is something called a nada, a little curved line, a little curved line. And so the sphere dissolves into the curved line, and the curved line tapers off to just a very tiny point. It gets slend, more and more slender as it goes up. It curves, but as it's curving up, it gets more and more slender, finer, until it just becomes a point. And so that's what it does. The sphere dissolves into the nada. The nada then goes, and poof, and then it's gone. And it dissolves into emptiness. So if you're practicing authentically, you don't just dissolve into a vacuity. You actually dissolve into shunyata, emptiness. Right? And then out of emptiness, then you may reemerge. Right? So it's just an analogy. Maybe it's not even useful, but I like it. And so that's what I would suggest is taking place here. And that is, the, the sensations are getting subtler and subtler and subtler, like that, nad, that, that nada, which you're, it, it's, it's dissolving into the very tip, and then the tip just goes into a point, and the point vanishes into empty space. And so the sensations get subtler and subtler and subtler until they get so subtle that you just release them, and then poof, your mind then slips right over into the form realm, and welcome to shamata land, because your coarse mind has just dissolved into the substrate consciousness. And all that you're now attending to is the substrate. And you've achieved shaman. So, that's that. Okay, now let's practice. That was a lot of words. The practice is really simple. So let's do it. Now that I've rather extensively front-loaded this meditation session, I can, use, I can use very few words in terms of guidance during the session. 
So let's begin by settling body, speech, and mind in the natural states, culminating in awareness, resting in its own place, free of grasping, free of distraction, resting in stillness in its own place. Resting awareness right where it is. Let it illuminate the entire space of the body, in which a myriad of sensations, tactile sensations, arise of earth element, the sensations of firmness and solidity, water element of moisture, fire element from cold to hot, and the air element, all sensations of motion. But within this rich field, this space of the body in which such a, a range of tactile sensations arise, be very selective, which is the very nature of shamatha. It is, always entails selective attention. Be selective now. Within this field of tactile sensations of such a variety, take as your object of mindfulness just those sensations that are correlated with the in and out breath. Once again, there's no need to visualize the body with naked, bare attention. Just focus on the tactile sensations themselves. 
as you attend to the whole body, as continuously as you can. For as long as it's helpful, arouse your attention with each in-breath and relax with each out-breath. But there will come a time when that's no longer useful. It's more straightforward simply to maintain a steady flow of mindfulness, of the fluctuations of the sensations correlated with the breath. And the same is true also for counting the breath. Do this only insofar as it's helpful, but at some time, at some point in your practice, that counting will be intrusive, it will clutter, it will interrupt the flow of mindfulness, at which point dispense with the counting and simply maintain an ongoing flow of mindfulness, continually engaged with the sensations of the breath without distraction. As continuously as possible, maintain the flow of mindfulness and monitor that flow with introspection, identifying laxity and dullness, excitation, agitation, and apply the remedy. And periodically check up on the body, especially the face, 
to see that no tension is arising there. No tension in the eyes or around the eyes and no tension in the forehead. Soft and relaxed. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
Hola. So this afternoon, we turn to the fourth of the four thoughts to turn the mind. So this will be, again, rather high density. Uh, this topic of actions and their consequences, cause and effect, or the so-called laws of karma. Uh, this is a field or topic that in the great monastic universities of Tibet, prior to the genocide there, uh, monks, including quite a number of my teachers, I would study this topic for four years. Four years, the, the, the time of our getting an undergraduate degree, it's been four years just studying karma. Uh, so it's, it's said by the Buddha that the most complex thing in the universe is karma. And we'll cover it in 45 minutes. <laughs> the Buddhist notion of karma, which of course the word simply means action, or more quintessentially, it's referring to volition, which then suggests voluntary action, deliberate action. Um, hmm. This topic makes sense if and only if, that the Buddhist understanding of this makes sense if and only if it's understood within the context of continuity of individual consciousness that precedes this lifetime and that continues after this lifetime. If one thinks that's implausible or just flat out doesn't believe it, that's fine. Uh, but then there's just no reason to look into karma because it just doesn't make any sense. It is the context, the necessary context for understanding karma because the causality, although karma does on occasion when it's very, very intense, very powerful karma, sometimes the fruition of the karma will occur in the same lifetime. That does happen. But by and large, the fruition will occur from lifetime to lifetime and sometimes a single act will have karmic repercussions for many, many lifetimes, almost like a single pebble that splashes on the surface of the water and makes splash, 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 splash. Uh, a sim single action will sometimes have rever reverberations or repeat performances in terms of its maturation in multiple lifetimes. And so to have as much clarity, that is, in terms of the details of karma, details of karma, of why this specific effect and how is this related to this specific cause this is something that it said you really have to actually be a Buddha to be able to thoroughly fathom uh, karma and to know it directly. Um, and for others, we simply have to, you can either, we either do or do not take it on authority. And so for there, then really investigate, investigating very closely the nature of being a Buddha, the life of the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha, and just see for ourselves. Obviously, it's an individual judgment. Is this a person we can count on? Is this a reliable witness? When he says that in the second watch of the night, on the night of his enlightenment, after ha having already seen with direct knowledge countless of his own past lifetimes, and in specific details for each one, in the second watch of the night, it was almost like his, his mind went from a ray to three-dimensional supernova, and that is, he said, he saw with direct knowledge myriad sentient beings and their myriad multiple lives. And not only seeing these staccato movements, like, okay, a life here and a life there and a life there, but in that second watch of the night, he saw the interrelationships, the patterns, the patterns of actions and consequences, actions and consequences, and for individual sentient beings from lifetime to lifetime, but then the cross-pollination, that we're influencing each other. This is where it gets so immensely complex, that there's, in, there's such a thing as individual karma, that you kind of do on your own. What you're doing in your own room, on your own time here, well, you're doing that, right? That's individual karma. But of course, there's also collective karma, and that is our presence right here, people listening by the podcast. This is collective. We're doing something 
with a, something of a shared motivation, a shared activity, which means we're accumulating collective karma, and that means the, the consequences of that will also be collective. So it gets very, very complex. And so the Buddha said this is what he saw in the second watch of the night, and that is the details of this type of cause giving rise to this type of effect, this individual, this collection here, this collection there, and then seeing that the karma manifests both in the environment as well as the, in the continuum of one's own mind stream from lifetime to lifetime. Um, but once again, if he was wrong on the first account, and that is there is simply no continuity of consciousness beyond death, then this really was a massive psychotic breakdown. I mean, massive delusion. Like, you'd really want to kind of pat him on the back and say, there, there, you know? So either he was having really a, a, a massive psychotic break, or he was having an absolutely mind-boggling discovery of the nature of the interrelationships of these continua of subtle currents of mental consciousness manifesting in lifetime after lifetime in multiple modalities or dimensions of existence, um, human and non-human, and so forth. So coming back, if one is going to take this seriously and try to understand it as much and not simply believe blindly, because I've never been keen on, I've never been really capable of, Blind belief, blind faith. It's just not in my repertoire. It just, it just doesn't make any sense to me. So do I have a lot of confidence in the Buddhist teachings of karma? Yes, I do. Do I know directly that, oh, yes, this caused that? No, I don't. But then at the same time, I say, nor, do I, nor can I give compelling evidence that there are exoplanets, you know, that I'm relying upon people that I trust. So coming back to the, the fundamental point, uh, if one is simply trying, op bringing an open mind, critical, skeptical intelligence, to try to come to some a confident working hypothesis. Because this is, again, not like simply accumulating figurines for your mantelpiece. Now I believe this, now I believe that. But actually think, acknowledging that we're betting our lives on our beliefs no matter what. That is, who can say with cert certitude, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt because of the empirical evidence that consciousness absolutely terminates at death. A lot of people believe that. Where's their evidence? Except for, yeah, you die, gee. Shazam, tell me something I didn't know, you know? And so people who believe that, they're betting their lives on that. They're betting their, their lives on the notion that, well, at least when I die, it's lights out, total termination, and then they are living in accordance with that. It's a working hypothesis. So you live with it, you experience the consequences, right? But they don't, I'll just say they don't know what they're talking about. They may be, it's not to say that they're not, right, that it's inconceivable they're right, it's conceivable they're right, and all the Buddhists are wrong, that's certainly conceivable. But is there definitive evidence to that effect? The answer is flat out no. I mean, that's just, frankly, I think it's not even debatable, but people debate it. And so whatever it is, whatever position we take, we are betting our lives on these really fundamental issues. If you bet your life that the earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the earth, not a whole lot of consequence either way. One's wrong, one's right, but in terms of impact on your life, not much. But on this one, life consciousness terminates at death, or it doesn't. The repercussions for the, from that are pretty vast, very vast. So either way, there's no such thing as believers and non-believers. I will say that with total confidence. We're all believers until you actually know you're a believer, and then it's, well, what do you believe? And so... To try to investigate this as much as possible with the empirical evidence and with intelligence, then the place to start, and this is, this is my approach, uh, 
is to look at the evidence. And the best evidence I've seen scientifically is the research that's come out of the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia. I've been there. I've spoken with some of the researchers there. They're very smart. They have no dogmatic axe to grind. I don't know that any of them actually follow any particular spiritual tradition. I saw no evidence of that. Um, but this is the work that was initiated by the psychiatrist and former head of, the, uh, of psychiatry at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. So a man of you know, very impeccable credentials, Ian Stevenson, studied evidence of children allegedly having past life recall. He studied it for about 40 years and summarized his research in a book called Where Reincarnation and Biology Intersect. If you've not seen that book, I strongly recommend it. It's very good research. And then he, he passed away some years ago, but he had a, a protege who I've also met, I've corresponded with him. He's a very good guy. Um, he's also a psychiatrist. And he's written a couple of books. One is Life Before Life. His name is Jim Tucker. One of his books is Life Before Life. I've read it carefully. It's very well thought out, uh, very sharp. And then he gives empirical evidence again. And he's recently come out with another book on this topic. And they're not redundant. The, the research continues. And I've met other people associated with their center there. So to simply look at the evidence and see, are there research methods? Are they sound? Are they rigorous? Are they not? If they're not, then good. Point out how they're not rigorous. What I find because I love science so much, I, I'm chagrined by the fact that this research that has been done meticulously, rigorously, with open mind, and that it's so widely ignored. And even scientists that I know and respect will make comments like, well, after all, the Buddhist theory of reincarnation cannot be studied scientifically. I say, Wait a minute. It has been studied scientifically. What do you think these guys are doing you know, for 40 years? And the research continues on. And so rather than just kind of throwing it off and say it can't be studied scientifically, look where it has been studied scientifically. And if the research is flawed, then point out why it's flawed and show how to do it better. And I've not found one scientist who's done that. Not even one. And I find that's kind of disgraceful. But the scientists hopefully will get over it and start looking at the evidence itself rather than refusing to look at the evidence because it contradicts their beliefs. And so there it is. So those are, those are a good starting point. And then draw your own conclusions. But now we come to, to Buddhist theory of karma, uh, which is based upon the Buddha's own insights. But again, as in the other points that I've made, um, the insights into nature of con the, the continuity of consciousness, the nature of multiple dimensions of consciousness, the desire realm, the form realm, the formless realm, uh, actions and their consequences, these discoveries have been replicated many, many, many times over the last 2,500 years. And so then, if one is interested, check out the methods of inquiry. Are they rigorous? Are they sophisticated? Are the discoveries replicated? How so? What's the evidence? There's a lot here that can be studied and not simply taking, taken on authority. When it comes to the details, why does this person have this quality? What were the, what were the causes? Well, that's where you kind of, you're either a Buddha or you take it on somebody else's uh, authority. So, there's an awful lot of material here. I'll try to hit just some of the most important themes. Because again, the reason for including this in a, pra a text that is entirely practice-oriented, this whole practice of transforming all phenomena, every experience into the path, and by way of developing ultimate and relative bodhicitta, it's all for the sake of practice. And so in including this this topic, the fourth of these four topics, of meditating on by way of discursive meditation, 
meditating on actions and their consequences. Because that's what is called in Tibetan, lende, action and consequences, which we call then laws of karma. The whole point of this, again, is to radically shift one's perspective on reality so that you see it in a new way. And as much as possible, that shift is based upon your own empirical and rational investigations. And at some point, you either do or do not find confidence that say, well, I was able to, to investigate it this far, and that others went much further, uh, and I think you've earned my trust. Or not, and that's your choice. But that basically is the criterion, the classic criterion of being a Buddhist or not being a Buddhist. And that is having investigated either very deeply or not so deeply the, the nature of the Buddha, his life, his discoveries, his, his, his accounts, his teachings, and then the teachings of the many, many generations of his followers since then, uh, does confidence in the integrity of the authenticity of the teachings and of the teachers, does that arise or not? And if that confidence does arise, very similar to the confidence that would arise in a friendship. So it's not some esoteric, exotic kind of trust or confidence. But if you, have, if you become friends with somebody, and then you get to know them for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and you've been through a lot of experiences with them, and you find that in a wide variety of circumstances, they just shine through again and again and again with integrity, with honesty, with clarity, with intelligence, uh, then they earn your trust, they earn your confidence. And if that person tells you after 30 years of friendship, last night I saw something unbelievable, I saw a UFO, or I saw something else that you know, most people don't see, then you take that person very seriously. Say, well, I've you know, I known you for 30 years. If you saw it, and I do, I do believe you thought you saw it, tell me more. I'm really interested because I really trust you. It's something like that. That's being a Buddhist. It's not that you believe everything the Buddha said literally. It is kind of really more of a, a, a heartfelt kind of issue of trust, of confidence. So let's get on to karma. So where to begin? Let's start here. Let's bring it right back to our experience. And in fact, let's go to the four laws of karma. There are four, there are four elements that are really very core. Let's see if I can find them here in the notes. Yes, there are. Although since I've looked at this, uh, since, uh, since I prepared the version you have, I've reformatted this so it's more, more accurate. On the notes we have, it's on page four, right towards the end of the discussion of karma, where it, says it speaks of the four laws of karma. This needs to be re reformatted, which I have done now on my, on my computer. Four laws of karma. And the first of these really should be, oh, well, there it is. Um, what makes an action non-virtuous or virtuous, positive or negative, wholesome or unwholesome? And the criterion here for determining whether, from in, within the context of karma, uh, for determining whether an action is wholesome or unwholesome, virtuous or non-virtuous, is when the seeds from that action, when we engage in a deliberate action of body, speech, or mind, then seeds, imprints, are stored, are accumulated in the continuum of consciousness. And sooner or later, they germinate, they manifest, and they, there's, it comes to a point when they fully manifest. It's called a nambar mimba in Tibetan. They fully manifest. There's the karmic fruition. There is the seed. There's the fruit. There it is. And there's a causal, a causal sequence between the two. And so if the full maturation of an action, karmically speaking, if that maturation is experienced as one of well-being, of happiness, joy, 
good fortune, felicity. If that's the nature of the effect, then you go back to the cause and say, given the nature of the effect, we will now retrospectively call that action a virtuous action because it gives rise to that kind of effect. Right? Whereas for another kind of action, if when it comes to full maturation, if it is experienced as misery, as adversity, as pain, as suffering, then we'll trace that back and say, okay, the seed that gave rise to that fruition, we're going to call that non-virtuous or negative. So that's how that is. But then, of course, for us who cannot remember our past lives, let alone the, the very specific causalities from this action to that fruition, then how on earth do we know when we, when we can't even remember our past lives? And the answer is, well, we can't, not, based on, not until we've achieved very high degrees of samadhi, very deep levels of insight, and then we can trace it for ourselves. But until then, then we may rely upon the kind of insight of the Buddha, who spoke at great length about karma and specific actions giving rise to specific causes, and basically was presented a science of karma based upon his empirical observations. So there it is, but we see it's beyond the scope of what we can rationally, empirically investigate in terms of this specific action and that specific effect. Can we possibly bring this back to this lifetime without negating, refuting, or even raising the issue of continuity of consciousness from lifetime to lifetime? Can we understand this within the context of this lifetime? Are there criteria by which we can judge actions within this context of this lifetime and determine in this context whether an action is wholesome or unwholesome? Uh, and I think it's a really important question. It's a, it's, it's a topic about which the Dalai Lama has now written two books. Usually one, one book per topic is enough because he has so many things to do. But the theme of ethics, <coughs> ethics outside the context of religion uh, a secular approach to ethics. He's now written two books on it, right? And so this shows how very important he regards this topic, and he also speaks on it very, very frequently. And so his works are definitely worth reading, uh, very, I think, very, very thoughtful, very deep in insight. Uh, and I will approach it in a complementary fashion. And that is, in the course of these few talks we've had here, and then a number of you read, read books of mine, raising the issue that I really unpack in some detail, about the nature of genuine happiness uh, from the Buddhist perspective. So I won't reiterate that. You've heard me speak on it. If we have something of a clear idea of what's meant by that, so the sense of well-being that arises from within that's not simply a response to pleasant stimuli. And we see it's something deep. It's something more than simply an emotion. It's truly a sense of flourishing. Then we can raise a purely empirical question that can be investigated experientially and rationally within the context of this lifetime. And here's the question. Given a certain type of deliberate activity, by way of the body, by way of speech, or activity of the mind, where we're intending to do something, the mind is in gear, it's already in action. So, three modes of karma, body, speech, and mind. When there's a deliberate action of body, speech, or mind, we can ask, as this action manifests in the world, even if where it's manifesting is only in your own mind. Or maybe it comes out expressed in words or it expressed in physical behavior. We can ask this question. Is this action conducive, supportive, nurturing my own and others' genuine happiness? Is this action detrimental to, corrosive to, my own and or others' genuine happiness? Or is it neutral? 
So I'll give you an example of neutral. This, that was a deliberate action. I drank some water, got a tiny bit thirsty. Not virtuous, non-virtuous, no real impact on my own or anybody else's genuine happiness. Either way, it's kind of insignificant. Right? So that one's a neutral. There's that whole category of actions which are called ethically neutral, karmically speaking, no significant impact. But if we look at a wide array of our activities of body, speech, and mind, and observe closely, so now this really calls for our intelligence, our close application of mindfulness. When we behave, when we observe other people's conduct, and observe not only the isolated, there was an act, but see it within the mesh, the matrix of experience, which is an ongoing flow of interdependence, when we look at the action and when we look at its consequences, if we see that an action really clearly leads to or enhances, supports our own and others' genuine happiness, I would suggest as a working hypothesis that we're fairly safe to assume that that action was virtuous. If the action clearly undermines, is detrimental to, our own and or, I always mean and or, our own and or others' genuine happiness. And I say our own and others because our genuine happiness is entangled. It's not these independent modes, but our very lives are entangled. But this means our genuine happiness also is entangled with those around us. If our actions are detrimental to our own or others and or others' genuine happiness, the chances are very, very good that that action would be called negative karma, unwholesome, non-virtuous. Now, that's something that can be investigated. It's entirely within the course of this lifetime. So how would that map? I'm going to ask a question that can't be answered, but at least it can be raised and kind of noticed. And that is, if we attended very carefully now, really as a, a scientist of our lives, a scientist of virtue, a scientist of ethics, a scientist of the good life, what constitutes a good life? If we took our lives very seriously, and our lives in relationship with those around us very seriously and attended very closely with so much intelligence that we're not looking just with moment-to-moment -moment awareness of whatever comes up, but seeing the fabric of reality, the interrelationship of actions and consequences between ourselves and others, individuals and communities, if we attended very closely and through the course of that, we are able to identify a whole range of activities that we say, this, I saw this was definitely conducive my own and or others genuine happiness and I'm going to identify that set of conduct or behavior and this set over here I saw this was unconducive detrimental to my own and or others genuine happiness and you see a set of actions and a set of their consequences then you could the question that could be raised is how does that set that you're now calling virtuous and that set that you're calling non-virtuous how does that correlate? How does that map onto classic Buddhist accounts rooted in the Buddha's own teachings of what constitutes virtue and non-virtue in terms of the full maturation of the actions from lifetime to lifetime? So there's a question, and we can't really answer it. But I did ask a very erudite monk, a Theravada monk, who was actually born in Nepal, raised, but he, he lives in Thailand. He's a very, very fine monk, an excellent monk, practitioner, outstanding scholar as well. And I was at a conference with him in, at uh, in Mahadon University a couple of years ago. And I asked him, as a person who spent his, I think, most, mo I think all of his adult life as a monk, and he knows his vinya, vinya, Buddhist ethics, inside and out. 
And I said, how do you think those two would map on? Because I explained you know, what I had in mind. Classic Buddhist account of virtue, non-virtue, relative to karmic consequences in future lifetimes. And then virtue, non-virtue, because it is or is not conducive to one's own and or others' genuine happiness. How do you think those two sets of virtue and non-virtuous actions would map onto each other? And he said, very closely. Very closely. He thought it would be a very, very close match. In other words, we take something that's really in the realm of religion. We're relying upon the authority of the Buddha, much as Christians rely on the authority of Jesus, and Muslims rely on the authority of the Quran as God's word, you know. And so really, it just relies upon authority. And one have to say, in the Buddhist context, this is very similar to that. We're relying upon the authority of the Buddha. Uh, and even though he said, yes, this is how to do it, well, until you're very, very far along the path of enlightenment, this is going to be out of reach. So that's food for thought. But I think this is certainly, if one is still maybe uncertain or not ready to take as a working hypothesis, hypothesis the teachings on continuity of consciousness from lifetime to lifetime, the Buddhist teaching and karma, this would be a really good working hypothesis in the meantime. But it does require a lot of perceptiveness, intelligence, close examination. First of all, with a clear sense, what does this word mean, this eudaimonia, this human flourishing, genuine happiness? What does this really mean in the Buddhist context? That has to be a very clear concept. If it's vague or mushy, then the research won't go very well. What is perfectly obvious is that if we judged what is virtuous, non-virtuous, in terms of how does it play out in terms of our hedonic well-being, well, that's not going to be ethics at all. That's called dog-eat-dog, dog, get away with whatever you can. Because there's no question that we can do things that we may be able to get away with that enhance our hedonic well-being. We get more money, we get more sex, we may get more enjoyment because we lied, we stealed, we cheated, we did sneaky things that were dishonest and so forth, and it can really pay off. It can really pay off, right? We know that's true. And so there are people who are really enjoying the hedonic pleasures, having lived very successful lives, leading a drug cartel or a mafioso, or they're embezzling from their business and then run off and escape. The law never catches them, and they enjoy their millions and go ha, 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 right? Until they die. And then maybe ha-ha, no longer. Right. So there's something practical. Let's look briefly, as our time is passing so quickly, just at these broad themes. So the four themes, the four laws, the four patterns. Actually, what they are is regularities. The whole notion of laws of karma, that term law is taken from the Judeo-Christian Judeo tradition. Because the earlier translators of Buddhism are coming from the Western culture. And so... In the theistic traditions, God imposes moral, law, moral laws on the universe, which he created. And then he enforces the laws. Obey, obey me or else. I'll send you here or I'll send you there. And so there's a theistic version where there's a morality in the universe, but it's imposed upon the universe by its creator, who then punishes and rewards. Well, there's no such notion in Buddhism. So the very notion of laws of karma is kind of a misnomer. Because laws, laws of a government, laws of a town, and so forth and so on, somebody created them, imposed them, and then enforces them. Well, there's no creator in the Buddhist view. There's no creator, somebody out there who did this to us. Nobody created the laws of karma. Nobody enforces the laws of karma. Um, they're just the way things are. And some of you may recall, just in terms of my own personal history, had I not encountered Buddhism, my life would have been uh, absolutely dedicated to ecology, 
environmental studies, environmental activism. That was going to be my whole life. It was one thing I could really believe in, totally, that it was good, it was meaningful, worthwhile, and enormously important. And I still believe all of that. I believe my, my Dharma practice is deep ecology, you know, going down to deeper roots of why we are create, creating havoc in our environment, uh, because it really stems from delusion, craving, and hostility. If we ask why are we violating the environment, those three things are the reason. It comes, and then now we're in Buddhism. So if we really want to remedy the outer manifestations of how we're desecrating the environment, wiping out whole species and so forth, well, it's not because we have the wrong laws, legislation and so forth, or, or business policies. Of course, that, that's the outer crust. But it really boils down to craving, delusion, and hostility. So the close analogy, I think it's a very, very close analogy, to try to understand, get the feel of What's going on with this karma in the Buddhist view? Since there's nobody, the Buddha didn't create karma. He doesn't enforce karma. He simply discovered these patterns. Uh, how can we understand that in terms of something familiar, at least by analogy? And I'd say there's a very, very close analogy coming from my background in ecology, environmental studies. Let's take a nice little innocent chemical like DDT. And I say it's innocent in the sense that when it's in a vial, a glass tube, does it have a, a tube with a cork in it? Um, it's just a chemical. And it's not even poisonous. Isolated in the tube. It's not poisonous. It's not poisoning the glass. It's not poisoning anything. And since it's not isolated in the tube, poisoning anything, then it's not poison. It's not a problem. Right? It's just a chemical, just like arsenic. It's just a chemical. But if you take that chemical in large quantities and then start spreading that out on fields, that chemical enters into the fabric of the natural environment, the soil, the air, the water, species, birds, reptiles, fish, and so forth. And one finds that <coughs> as one wanting to get better profit, for, for your crops. And so you spray this and then all the, the so-called pests are killed by that and you can make more profit. And so that's what you wanted. But then you find, okay, I, hedonically, good, I got now more crops because those, those insects or other critters didn't eat them. And so for this is a good thing. I'm very happy. I'm making more profit. And I sprayed that chemical out there and it killed the critters that are competing with me for that food. But then it goes into this complex pratija samutpada, this immensely complex network of interrelationships of our natural world, the flora and the fauna, the earth, the water, the sky. And as it enters into that causal nexus, then it comes around and you find that your children are getting leukemia. You're getting this kind of cancer, this type of disease, this type of disease, as well as wiping out whole species in the process. They say, oh, that innocent little chemical in the vial, which was not poisonous at all, when it was put into the environment and entered into that whole causal nexus, it winds up being poisonous for the birds, poisonous for the fish, and then, oh, poisonous for our species too. Maybe we should outlaw the use of DDT. Because what goes around comes around, and we didn't like what came around. That's why... DDT is poisonous, regarded as a toxin, not because it's a toxin in a vial, 
but it's a toxin when it enters into that whole complex array of interrelationships of our natural world, and it winds up killing living beings, sentient beings. Then we say, uh-oh, we shouldn't do that. Now, was there some environmental god out there that said, thou shalt not use DTT, and if you do, I'm going to zap you? No, don't need it. You can understand it completely naturalistically, that, that nobody was punishing anybody, right? But it just, when it entered into that causal nexus, it comes around, and because it comes around in a way that we don't like, that harms our bodies, gives rise to misery, suffering, illness, and so forth, therefore we say that which caused it is a toxin, and we shouldn't put that into the environment. May not have been evident for the first five years or the first ten years, but uh-oh, the full maturation comes maybe 20 years later. The full maturation. The early maturation looked really good. Just like a person who steals the wallet of another person. The early maturation is good. Oh, I got his money. Cool. I can buy some more video games. Early maturation, really good. Long maturation, not so good. Karmically speaking, too bad. You made a mistake. Right? So if one takes that model of what are we putting out into the environment and then watching closely, and this is the job of ecologists, to watch what are we putting out and what comes back. And then we see retrospectively, that was toxic. That was a bad idea. That was a bad idea. And a bad idea that is environmentally, that's non-virtuous. 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 Oh, you stopped doing that. That's virtuous. Oh, you did this. That was virtuous. Because now as it goes into that causal nexus, it comes back and it's healthy. It's nurturing. It restores the balance of nature. It's, oh, well, then that's virtuous. So that's e ecological virtue and non-virtue. You may not be able to tell it by the cause itself, but when the cause gets into that causal nexus of interdependent relationship and it manifests, what goes around does come around, then you see, aha. And now as an ecologist, then you start seeing, hey, everybody, that is uh, governments, businesses, and so forth, this is virtuous, this is not virtuous. You may not see it, but we do, because we're looking at the causal sequence that may take decades to come around, but therefore this should be against the law, right? It's a very close analogy. It's a very close analogy. So an action is virtuous if its full maturation is experienced as felicity, good fortune, well-being, health. It's non-virtuous if the full maturation is the opposite. So there's the first rule, and that's, that's how it's defined in terms of the consequences and not just looking at the action itself and say, Buddha said this is evil, or God said this is evil. No, it's because of the consequences that we retrospectively identify something as virtuous or non-virtuous. But now holding in mind that analogy of the environment, with nobody punishing or rewarding anybody, but just this is how it plays out as, as felicity or as adversity, then we go to the second of the causes, and we can find that, forelock, the natural increase is a really interesting one. And that is, it said, when we sow a seed, we engage in a certain action. And there's a great symmetry here. What is true of virtuous action is also true for non-virtuous action. And that is, if we, so let's use a nice example. We engage in an act of selfless generosity. Okay? Very good. It's benevolent, no strings attached. We simply do something to be of assistance to another person, community, and so forth. And then we're, we take delight in it, and that's it. We expect nothing in return. It was just offered. Nice, pure virtue. There's the action. A seed was sown. But, by, but again, it's not sown in an isolation. It's not kept in a, in a test tube. 
is not isolated from the environment. That by engaging in the action, a nice gen act of generosity, it's now slipped into that causal nexus, not just of the physical environment, which is what ecology is all about, but the whole environment of people's minds, of bodies, this vast array of nature, which includes a lot more than simply configurations of mass energy, it slips into this vastly complex array, network, of causal interactions. And now it said that with that action launched out into the world and the seeds, seeds of that action sown in one's own mind stream, then over time, the repercussions of that action grow with time. Grow with time. It's not static. Quite interesting. So it's something of a butterfly effect. Or we find, this, we find this also in ecology. One little action. Let's say a little action like, how about this? Introducing rabbits to Australia. Just two. That's a little action, right? Just a little action. But then things do grow with time. Or somebody, some, some people in Florida. Oh, it's one of my favorite stories. Some people in Florida thought it would be so nice to have pythons as pets. So they got these cute little pythons, you know, just four or five, six feet long, and they raised them as pets. But the surprising thing happened. They got bigger. Who would have thought, you know? But they did. And they got really quite large, and so they were no longer really so pet-like. And so what did these folks in Florida do? Well, they just released the pythons into the Everglades where they did not belong. Now there are hardly any mammals left in the Everglades. The pythons ate them all. A little thing, just a few pets. What's one python going to do? It says your next door neighbor and your other next door neighbor. What's one python going to do? Almost all the mammals are gone in the, in the Everglades now. The pythons even eat alligators. They can grow to 20, 30 feet. Now we have in Florida. Who would have thought just a few pythons. But they really, they really like it there. So little actions, big consequences. It's true in ecology. It's true in karma. The little doesn't stay little. When it goes into that causal nexus, it grows. It expands, sometimes exponentially. That's a big theme. That's the second one, as our time so rapidly runs out. If a deed is not committed, its effects will not be experienced. <clears throat> Just that. There are so many examples, many of them cited in Buddhist literature, where some calamity strikes and a whole bunch of people experience great adversity. But one person doesn't. And the Buddha actually identified such situations where something terrible happened to a whole group of... And then one person gets off scot-free. There's no repercussion, no suffering at all. Just didn't happen. And the Buddha said... And then the Buddha would go back and say, the actions that gave rise to that in previous lives, there was a whole collective of people here. They collectively engaged in a certain action, but one person didn't. And now they've come to a later lifetime, and the consequences of that very ne negative action are now slamming the many people who did participate in it, but the person who didn't doesn't get the effect. If you don't get, if you don't sow the cause, you don't get the effect. So, and then the final one—that's three—and the fourth one is that these karmic seeds nominally 
stored in the continuum of consciousness. But again, don't reify that, as, as I discussed a couple of days ago. That the seeds of karma don't wear out. Like seeds of grain will just, after a while, they just, entropy will hit and they're just no longer, can get, you know, they no, no longer germinate. But the seeds of karma, they don't self-annihilate all by themselves. They will simply continue and continue and continue. But they don't wear out. They don't just disappear or lose their potency over time. Right? They continue. So, final comment is we're coming to the end. I mean, this is an enormous topic, and I've, I've barely scratched the surface. I was reading just recently, I was someplace else, I was in Mexico uh, teaching the Cultivating Emotional Balance teacher training and raised the issue of free will, free will, uh, and commented that um, I did a little tiny bit of research. I, I've studied, I've written a whole paper on it. It's published in, in a journal, but also in the book called Meditations of Buddhist Skeptic, my latest academic book. And by the way, for a critique and really looking at the evidence for continuity of consciousness, among my academic books, Mind and the Balance is the most definitive. But coming back to the issue of free will, uh, it wasn't even a topic in the West. I just learned this recently. Uh, we think of free will as like philosophers have been thinking about that forever, and now psychologists and neuroscientists and so forth. But in fact, it was only time of, of, of St. Augustine in the 4th, maybe 5th century. He, he was the one that raised it. What I read just recently was until him, when we go back to the Greek philosophers, uh, the issue of fate was really big. Fate, you know, this happened because of fate, 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 and something not necessarily pointing to a god, but you know, well, what can you do? It was your fate. It was your destiny, right? And so something totally beyond your control. And so that was a widespread, widespread belief among the Greek philosophers up to the time of St. Augustine, around 4th, 5th century. But then this becomes, a, if one just assumes that, draws that view, that assumption of fate, predestined, it was going to happen no matter what because of fate, you bring that into Christianity, you've got an enormous problem in your hands. Because in the Christian view, of course, God is sending some people to eternal damnation and other people to eternal bliss, salvation. And if this is all happening because of fate, that's kind of inconceivably awful. right? And so then St. Augustine introduced the theme of free will. He said, how do we make sense of this? He said, well, man has free will. We are responsible for actions. They're not determined by fate, not determined by God. We are responsible. And therefore, if you're going to hell, well, you deserved it because you made some bad decisions and God's going to now take it out on you forever. Or if you made some good decisions, get your belief system right and so forth, well, then, okay, good for you. Then God will bless you forever. But basically, it comes down to you. You're, you're responsible because he had to say that. I mean, you kind of have to say that. Otherwise, God looks like a sadomasochist, just creating some people and say, I'm going to create you, and you're going to go to hell, and you heaven, and hell, 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 heaven. You look like really creepy psychosis, you know? And so he, he was a really brilliant man, Augustine. Well, the Buddha addressed this. It did come up. I've written a whole paper on it, given all the sources in the Pali Canon in particular. And he completely refuted the notion of fate, destiny, predetermination. He refuted explicitly the notion that karma is fate. That everything that happens to us, oh, it's, it's all karma. Including if I steal your wallet, what could I do? It was my karma. You know? I'm, I'm the, I have the karma to be a thief. What can I do? You know? uh, wrong. Not true. Not true. That is not the nature of karma, that all of our actions are predetermined by previous karma. And we're just kind of running along 
pushed by the waves of karma with no, no actual volition. Okay? He completely refuted that. He also completely refuted the notion that our actions are just random. Just, oh, I did it, I don't know, no reason at all. You know? So he refuted random activity, random actions. He refuted that our actions, our choices, are predetermined at all. He said, no, you're actually making choices. It's a very subtle middle way here. I could really go on now at 6 o'clock. Free will, free will in one minute. But it's so interesting in Buddhism to raise this issue at all. Because we know in Buddhism, in all schools of Buddhism, the notion of there being an autonomous, self-existent, independent ego, self, that is, stands apart from the body and mind and ru runs them, like basically the god of your, own, of your own microcosm, of your body and mind, and that you have this top-down influence on it, and you're making your own autonomous decisions independently of your mind, independently of the body and the whole environment. It's completely refuted. The very notion of there being such a self that is autonomous, independent of the body and mind, and yet running the body and mind. That's exactly what's refuted, for lack of evidence. Not because it's some Buddhist dogma, but show me the self that has the body and mind and that's running them. No, you look into the system of the body and mind and you find pratita samupada. You find all types of mental events, physiological events, all arising in mutual interdependence and interdependence with the surrounding environment. So there we go. No independent self. So in other words, if you try to introduce this, let's say, Christian notion or the notion of free will as a, an act or volition that occurs outside any causal nexus, well, there has to be somebody who has that free will, who also stands outside of any causal nexus, who's making those decisions completely freely, independent of cause, cause and effect, and there's just no, no such notion in Buddhism. So then it would be easy, well, if there's no self who has free will, then there's no free will, therefore Buddhism says predetermination. Eh. Wrong there. Or then you mean there is an independent self. Nope, wrong there either. It's a very subtle middle way. It's a middle way there. Very interesting. Very interesting. So I've written a long paper on it. If you're interested in reading, Meditations of Buddhist Skeptics. It's there. But we are responsible for our behavior. And the more sane we are, the more responsible we are. If we have brain damage, if somebody has slipped some kind of a terrible drug into our food and we become crazy because of the drug, if we become mentally ill, schizophrenic, psychotic, and we're still engaging in voluntary action, but under massive overload of brain damage, disease, drug, and what have you, there's still some karma, very little, very little. Right? If you're psychotic and you kill somebody, the action of killing is still negative. But that, compared to a person, is of sound of mind, premeditated murder, and kills a person for, let's say, their money. There's no comparison. They're both negative, but one has massive influence, the other one has very little. But also in the whole spectrum of sanity, how sane are we? The more sane we are, the more responsible we are for our conduct. The more responsible. The more insane we are, the less responsible. So there it is. That was his holiness message to me the first time I met him. The more understanding you have, the greater responsibility. Very sobering. So there's so much more. You can, you can read the notes, and there are many, many good books on karma, the nature of cause and effect. A lot of very good scholarship by Asians as well as Western scholars. So, but again, the point of it is now we're over time. 
is not simply to become a Buddhist scholar or simply to acquire a whole bunch of metaphysical beliefs, but to take this to heart and to understand and to embrace as deeply as we possibly can a core theme of Buddhism. And that is that our presence here in this world is one of observer participants. We are observing what's taking place. It's very true. But we're participants. We're participants. We are agents. We're involved. We're not simply victims. We are participants. And to take full responsibility for what we're bringing to the world. And in terms of what the world brings back, well, this is, these four thoughts that turn the mind are the prelude to the whole rest of the text of how then not to be a victim of what's coming to us as if it's inherently objectively real and just being dumped on us but to recognize that not only in terms of what we're offering to the world, which is clearly a process of participation, but also in terms of how we are experiencing what reality dishes up to us, how we experience is also participatory, that we do have choice, very deep and meaningful choice. How we experience what life dishes up, what our karma dishes up, is in our hands. And that's what Lojong is really all about. It's transmuting the entire experience, not just shifting in attitude, but our, our, the subject is so entangled with the object that as we shift our attitude, we're also shifting the experience of the, that which we are experiencing. Therefore, what we are experiencing is different than what we experience otherwise. We're shifting the whole system. By shifting the subject, we're also shifting the object as we experience it. Literally, then, we are shifting the world we're living in as we shift our perspective. It's really, really deep. It's really, really deep. And where he's going from here is right into ultimate bodhicitta, to realize that nothing inherently and objectively is rising up to meet us as inherently existing subjects over here, but it's all of a nexus, and it's one in which we're participating fully. It kind of staggers the mind. But this is the fourth revolution. This is the fourth revolution. And it needs much, much deeper understanding than I can possibly convey now in 50, 55 minutes or so. But it's worth the study, worth really investigating. And, if we end, and I'll end on this note. If we come to either a strong conviction, or even if it's not total conviction, if we come to the sense, this may very well be true, and I think I'll bet my life on this hypothesis rather than the contrary. And that is the hypothesis that there's going to be an individual continuity of our own consciousness beyond death. If we say, all right, I'm going to bet my life on something. I got no choice. Right? You're going to believe something. You're going to be living your life in accordance with some assumption that you can't ver verify just yet. The big, big options are materialism versus non-materialism. There's a lot of varieties of non-materialism. But materialism, okay, it's annihilation. It's your, your blotto. There's not a whole, well, a whole lot of ways of interpreting that. If there's continuity, okay, that's a big deal. If we take that as a working hypothesis, say, okay, I'll bet my life on that. Looks like a better bet than the other one. Then there's just one question that comes up that's the most important question. If there's going to be continuity, 
a conscious continuity carrying through, through the dying process, through the bardo, and whatever comes after that, then does my behavior now, the way I lead my life now, in this lifetime, does this or does this not have serious ramifications, consequences, repercussions for what comes after this life? Yes or no? It's kind of, it is a yes or no kind of question. If it doesn't, if what's coming in the bardo and after that, if it's unrelated to anything I do in this lifetime, in other words, it's just kind of random. You live a really virtuous life, and the consequences of that get your teeth knocked out. Life just beats you to pulp. Because, well, just go figure. It's a crazy world. And there's just no coherence from lifetime to lifetime. You're just being batted around helplessly in a chaotic universe where there's no sense, there's no sense to it. No regularities, no, no coherence, no meaning. Then we're really out of luck. That's really, really, really out of luck. If that's the case. Well, of course, the Buddha said, no, that's not the case. But that's it. It's either, if there's continuity, then the consequences from lifetime to lifetime are either just random, chaotic, makes no sense, no continuity, no meaningful coherence between this life and future lifetimes. There's one in which case, then there's just nothing to do, just kind of sit back and be a victim. Or the Buddha is saying, well, that's completely false, that in fact, right now we are creating our, virtue, uh, creating our future. Right now, with every voluntary act, we are creating our future. In which case, then we're living in a meaningful world. And it's a world in which ethics is actually ingrained in the very fabric of the world. But it's not some human-made ethics. It really does boil down to something simple. And that is conduct by body, speech, and mind that's in accordance with reality turns out to be virtuous. Because any non-virtue is stemming from, at its root, delusion, craving, and hostility. Craving and hostility are derivative of delusion. No delusion, no mental afflictions of craving and hostility. And so all the evils that human brings bring to the world, whether in the family or with whether geopolitics, all the evil that we bring to the world is all stemming. This is the Buddhist massive hypothesis that all evil in the world that we human beings bring to the world, and for that, for that matter, other sentient beings as well, stems from delusion, craving, and hostility, or in short, from delusion. Right? So every non-virtuous action is an action that is occurring that is out of accord, contrary to, in friction with reality. Engage in ways that are in accordance with reality, not under the domination of delusion, craving, and hostility, but rather under the, the influence of wisdom, of knowing reality as it is, motivated by compassion, which is the natural response to knowing reality as it is, act in accordance with reality, and the result is felicity, genuine happiness. So morality, virtue, non-virtue, is simply in engaging in accordance with the reality or contrary to reality. In that way, then, ethics is embedded in the very fabric of reality. Act in accordance with it, it gives rise to greater happiness, especially genuine happiness. Act contrary to it, and you suffer. I have to stop someplace. I think that's it. Enjoy your dinner. I'll see you tomorrow morning. Ah, see you Monday morning. Monday morning. So yet, then you get one day now, one day every seven weeks, every, every, every week, to create your own one-day retreat all by yourself. No outside obligations at all. If you want to sleep all day, you can do that. 
but it's your baby. And so enjoy the, the day of just one day of your own individual retreat. Enjoy it, and I'll see you Monday morning. That's right.